Hey everyone, thanks so much for joining me for this week's episode of When I Grew Up. On today's episode, it's my pleasure to welcome my guest, Marshall Cho. Hey Marshall, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, my pleasure. Looking forward to this. Um, so Marshall is here because he is a uh, well, going to tell me about what he does, but he's a basketball coach in um, Oregon. And um, I'm really excited to hear all the things like what you do, uh, what your day looks like. But most, I think, honestly, like, um, so I used to be a figure skating coach. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And so, like, coaching for me, and I'm sure for you, like, it turns into something else, right? Like, it's it turns into just really championing people. And so, and I, I've been following your, your feed on Instagram for a little while now. And for me, um, it really translates like your love for the sport and your love to see your students grow and what they do. Um, and yeah, I'm excited to hear how the, all, all that came to be. So, um, I'm just going to call you coach from now on. Okay. That sounds good. (laughs) Yeah, uh, that's pretty normal, you know. I get, I get called that all the time, so yeah, yeah. Let's, let's roll with that. Okay, nice. Well, coach, um, yeah, can we start with where you're a basketball coach? Sure. Um, so I'm currently the head boys basketball coach at Lake Oswego High School. This is my eighth year. Oh, wow. Um, it's in the suburbs of Portland, Oregon. Um, our claim to fame is Kevin Love, who played for the Cavaliers, played at oh, UCLA, wow. uh, attended here. Um, yeah, I, I'm raising my two, uh, children. My son's about to turn 12, at, uh, on the 18th year coming up. My daughter's nine turning, turning 10 in December. So it's been, it's been a pleasure just, you know, I, prior, prior to this, I was, a I dabbled with college, you know, basketball for a couple of years. I coached in the East coast and I'm originally from the, from the Eugene Springfield area here, two hours South of Portland. So okay. It was a chance to come home, raise my kids, um, be around family. So it's it's been a good tempo, good pace, as we like to say. But um, you know, I just to full disclosure, just to even you know spend some time tonight with you is, you know, hopefully the listeners, a lot of people are t- tuning in just because the title, like, what should I do when I grow up, you know? Yeah. And I think at 46 years old, I'm still trying to figure that out. So hopefully, someone listening out there feels like they have a permission to you know, to know that that's okay. Um, But right now I'm a coach. That's my title. Um, Most people, when they ask like, what do you do? I I think I tend to say I'm an educator. Mm -hmm. I spent 12 years in the classroom before really focusing on being a basketball coach. Um, Joined the Teach for America program right out of college in the year 2000. I was teaching in the South Bronx for three years, Central Harlem for three years, lived in Africa, you know, taught, taught and coached there for three years. Oh, and wow. So my, my background is really more in inner city education. And I kind of stumbled onto this coaching thing and, you know, trying to make it as professional of a pursuit as possible, mm. um, even though I'm in a high school coaching setting. Um, okay, I have a lot of questions. But yeah. my first question is, um, the high school that you coach at, you know, is it is it like kind of known to be a basketball school or yeah you could say that this okay. is um you know then you know we're right you know with within stone's throw of beaverton oregon which is okay. where the nike world headquarters is oh um a lot of the executives or just families who work in nike live in lake oswego mm. um so there's yeah there's some of that natural connection there um we're one of 100 
uh, Nike Elite High Schools that's officially sponsored as a basketball program sponsored by Nike. So oh, we wow. get gear and, and all the perks of just being affiliated with the brand that's you know known known for basketball. So in that sense, it's a pretty serious job. Um, but at the same time, we're a small public high school of slightly over 1,100 students. Uh, um, we're a public school again, so we don't recruit. Um, it's it's really up to us to build our players from the grassroots level in our backyard. Um, at the same time, we we've, we've done. I feel pretty proud to say that we've done a good job of building a community um, and we can touch on this later just a, I think a lot of our identity and our cultures comes a lot from my own Korean American identity mm. um, so you know we've we've attracted attracted good players and we have a lot of momentum now where we continue on this path you know we'll continue to have the success that we just started to taste in the last three four five years that's amazing. Um, so, coach, like, what does a typical day for a basketball, a high school basketball coach, will even look like? Yeah. So you're catching me. You know, I just walk. You know, rushing in here, West Coast time, seven fifteen, and you know, not to like name drop or anything, but I was running behind. You know, we had to reschedule even our interview because yes. I had Damian. I had Damian Lillard coming in, and he's literally. I'm looking out my window right now. He's getting jump shots up right now, and. And so this is the off season, right? Where this interview is taking place in in early August. Mm-hmm. Um, so typically for a high school coach, this is time. If you're if you're teaching full time, then you know this is really when people take vacations and whatnot. But mm-hmm. um, I think it's hard to shake my immigrant work ethic. Uh, <laughs> I was born and raised in Korea. Came to the states when I was ten. I'm you know it's been almost four decades here. I'm I've been living in this country, but we we're always in the gym. You know, mm-hmm. we, I, I guess we would say we're gym rats. So. This morning, we started with uh, summer basketball camps. Um, CJ McCollum, who also played for the Blazers, is in town. So he came in this morning, got some shots up at 7 a.m. He was in and out. We had our high school guys come in for a workout from 8 to 9 a.m. And uh, we had a day camp for our first through ninth graders in the, oh, wow. in our backyard um, from 9 to 12. And, you know, I went home for a couple hours and then I'm right back here. So um, trying to keep keep busy and just keep the gym open so that 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 culture of you know work ethic and gym you know being gym rats is you know something that we're really trying to cultivate here. Okay, that's amazing. Um, in the sense of like, I can't believe how much work actually goes into this. Um, but, yeah. but um, like uh, this culture that you're talking about. Um, just because I'm so uneducated in this area, like, is this normal in most high schools? Um, I would say. Probably not. Okay. <laughs> if yeah, I'm being it, real it with you, I mean, um, I remember high school, and I don't remember. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's it's um, it's it's a, it's my own attempt to carve my own path in this mm. high school basketball world. So okay. I think I think I, I haven't had the privilege of listening to other you know interviews that you may have held, but it, it, there you can really make this an entrepreneurial entrepreneurial pursuit. Mm. You know, like some of some of what we do with our camps is to make sure that our income is supplemented, you know, because being a public high school coach, you don't make that much money. Yeah. But, you know, we built out a campus where I'm able to pay my assistant coaches, you know, some Mm -hmm. extra cash and, you know, put some extra cash in their pockets, you know, in the off season. Um, And at the same time, you know, I think, you know, if if I'm going to do this, you know, I I told myself that I wanted, I wanted to build one of the top programs in the state that people can look at and say, like, that's a model that, you know, we would want to follow. You know, again, just touching on, my own Korean American identity. I'm, you know, I was the first Asian American head coach at a varsity basketball level here. You know, in forever. Amazing. <laughs> you know, so amazing. in that in that yes. sense, you know, that was seven eight years ago, and I I felt 
a sense of responsibility in terms of building a program like when they associate, you know, like Oswego, when they look at Coach Cho, yeah. um, that there's excellence, you know, something that they that, you know, that they think of. Right. Yes. So um, I think that drives me every day to to do more than what's probably required. But also at the same time, in the course of doing that, um, we built an amazing you know, coaching staff that helps me sustain this level of commitment that I don't have to do all the heavy lifting that we mm-hmm. share the workload. And, you know, hopefully it's something that that's sustainable, you know, because um, that's not always the case either. There's burnout in every profession that, you know, people come across. And of course, definitely we're not susceptible to that either. Right, right. Um, so, Coach, I, I'm sorry to like jump around, but I'm kind of just thinking of questions as you're talking. And um, I don't know, maybe this question that I have is a little bit too real. But, but yeah, I mean, like, you know, you mentioned you're the first Asian American coach, right? Like head coach in this area where you live. Um, Like, what is that like? Was there any backlash when you first got hired as an Asian American coach? Because for me, if I'm honest, it's I mean, me too. I'm like, oh, shoot. Like, that's kind of crazy. Um. When when I look at it like that, you know, like, I mean, do people ask you, like, what are your credentials or what happened? Yeah, um, boy, that's that's a loaded question in in some sense. And then (laughs) then in other ways, you know, in other ways, maybe it's not, you know, it's Mm -hmm. um, I I recently and I say recent in the the last couple of years, you know, with all the Asian hate crimes that's been happening. and, And if anything, in the last few years is really where. I realize even more to the depth of how significant it is that I'm holding this position. Mm-hmm. Um, initially, when I took the job, I, I again, I told you I had an inkling that this is this is a big deal. But at the same time, I don't want to be just looked at as an Asian American coach on right. the one hand, correct? Right. But on the other hand, over the over the past seven years and everything that we've experienced in our country, um, I also knew that in my own identity, as I was seeing my children grow up, that I couldn't just sit back and not speak up. And, and to hold back on my Asian American identity, if you would, if you can say, mm-hmm. um, you know, Lake Oswego is um, one of the wealthiest suburbs. It, it is the wealthiest suburb um, in the state of Oregon. Oh, wow. It is an affluent community. At the same time, our, you know, our city had also used to carry a nickname called Lake No Negro, you know, where mm-hmm. there were housing policies that were set in place where people of color couldn't own property here. Mm-hmm. So for me, again, just kind of painting the picture before for all of you listeners that I majority of my um, teaching career was spent in inner city of South Bronx, Harlem That's and right. Baltimore to now teach in this place, I, I teach and coach. And I, I've stepped away from the classroom and I've really just been focusing on my coaching career, but to be an Asian American, to be a Korean American figurehead in this community and to intentionally put Lake Cho on t-shirts when people call Lake O, right? So it's a, it's again, being comfortable in some ways we've, we've all experienced it, having our last names being poked fun of or whatnot, but also owning it and saying, well, that's our history. That's in the past. And some of that actually in the recent years, that kind of hate has come up, mm. you know, through politicians who think it's okay to say certain things as a China virus or, you know, mm. uh, to say things that would put us a target on our back. Yeah. So in my own way, I don't know how what protesting looks like, but in my own way, I think my form of contributing to a better world for my own children is mm-hmm. to say, 
look at what we're building here. Mm -hmm. And if you want to associate Lake Oswego with excellence, Lake Cho with excellence, Lake O, that's Lake Cho. Um, it's a place that's inclusive, that, that, that we have a coaching staff that's diverse. Mm. That's my form of letting people know that, you know, that we belong here, mm -hmm. that we have a voice, we can be seen, and we can be associated with doing anything, you know, that we choose to do in this country. Yeah. That's why that's the sacrifice of our, you know, my immigrant parents that, who came, you know, had to give up so much for us to be able to chase our dreams. So, um, and I think owning that voice, being unapologetic about it. Mm -hmm. um, so that was, I was telling you a couple of years ago, I had a chance to give a talk to our Asian American student group and they asked me for a title of the title of the talk. And I, and I, I gave them the title unapologetically mm -hmm. Lake Cho. And I stole that line of being unapologetic because there's a Korean rapper uh, by the name of Dumbfounded. Yeah. Who's a Korean battle rapper. And he would, he had to live in that space of hip hop. And, and he really learned that, you know, hip hop is such an unapologetic art form. Yeah. Because then it's so unapologetically black. And he it, he's somebody who had to survive, you know, and exist and, and thrive in that space. And I really like took to that. Like, I, I don't ever want to be apologetic about my identity and my upbringing mm -hmm. and, and the fact that like people would assume that I don't play basketball or mm -hmm. I don't coach basketball. Mm -hmm. um, but but again, the, the hard work that comes with having built this program gives me some leg to stand on and say, I'm here. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Um, I really appreciate your transparency in that question. I, you know, it's just even, yeah, because I mean, it's not like there are a lot of Asian American, like, basketball players in the that are in the public eye that that people see and identify with um, I can even recall like students that I did um, church ministry with where they were really good players but uh, when it came to trying out for varsity or anything like that um, they shied away right because yes. like that just wasn't a common thing and um, no one encouraged them, no one pushed them. And I think most of all, it was hard for them to see anybody doing it um, ahead of them. But to hear you say things like this, for me, gives me a lot of hope for the next generation and even my own children as you're speaking about yours. So it's really cool. Um, okay, sorry. What is, the, what is a school day? Like when school is in session, yeah. uh, what does a day look like for you then? Yeah, so I was explaining earlier, and, and this is something, again, I've, I've wrestled with a lot. Because um, for the for the last few stretch stretch of years, I've been a stay at home dad. So my wife is um, works in a public health sector, international mm -hmm. public health sector for a non governmental organization. And for for a stretch, was our children were young, she was traveling to Africa and other places oh, wow. quite a bit. So it you know if I was going to pursue this basketball thing, then I would be the stay at home dad. And I and I could have taught as well, but. Um, I really wanted to focus on my coaching career and having the flexibility to, you know, drop something and go work a camp overseas and and, and that type of thing. So yeah. we made that conscious sacrifice, I mm -hmm. guess, if you would say. Um, and, and in many ways, it's, it was a, it's been a financial sacrifice as well. Mm -hmm. um, but once the school year starts, you know, my kids go to school and, you know, I'm, I'm planning out my camps and clinics and, you know, um, really getting set for the school year, you know. Um, the season typically for most high school coaches will run from November to March. Okay. Um, so there's, there's a, and each state is different where, you, you know, the amount of hours that you're allowed to work with your players in the off season varies from state to state. So for okay. our state, you get six hours a week um, starting in mid September until, you know, mid November. Um, so, 
you know, I, I'm organizing a lot of that with my coaching staff. And, and as I touched on earlier, I came from having coached or having been on a coaching staff at University of Portland for two years, which mm -hmm. is a division one program here. And so I tried to run this program like a college program. Oh, wow. And, and so some of that is, you know, every year I also get that, that siren call of, hey, do you want to go back to college basketball? Um, I initially got out of it because it was such a lifestyle that I felt like I couldn't be a good dad and, and mm -hmm. be around and have a presence and, you know, having our young children grow up. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, if I'm being really honest with you, like I realized over the last eight, nine years that I'm no matter job, what job I'm going to take, I'm going to be working a lot. Yeah. So I think some of it is also giving myself permission and giving me a, a lane to hop back into that college coaching world should that present itself. Um, but at the, at the, you know, in the meantime, you know, I get a chance to drop off my kids at school or I get yeah. to pick them up and I get to spend time with them. And then also, you know, spend the evenings, you know, working with my, you know, teenage basketball players yeah. in our program. <laughs> um, okay. Sounds good. Okay. So, um, I, what, okay. How much like, uh, to, okay. To, to be at like a top team. And sure. you said you get six hours a week with, with them in the off season or sorry, what did you say? Yeah. It's six hours from about September, end of September, actually. Okay. Until mid November. Mid November. Okay. Mm -hmm. So like, um, how does one like start training a team? Like you train the varsity team, right? Yeah, there, we actually have five teams in our program, which oh, is not normal for us. You know, that sounds abnormal. <laughs> yeah, so we have a we have two freshman teams. Okay. And two JV teams. Okay. So there's a freshman A, freshman B. So the A is the better team. With the, I see. You know, two JV and JV one. Oh, so JV why is one it like JV this? Two. It, it's for at least for our program, we do it this way so that as many kids can play and participate as possible. I love that. That's yeah. so great. Yeah, and then they feed into the varsity program. Yeah, which yeah. It's extremely hard to you know, to make. Um, and it's a big deal when they do graduate and, you know, earn their sure. varsity letter. I mean, but that makes a lot of sense to me. It's like you start the culture freshman year mm -hmm. and they have a more of a, if they really do want to play, they have more of a chance to to make it to varsity, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, the culture you're talking about is actually, it really starts in the summer with our summer camps mm. that I was mentioning. You know, we, we run five, yeah. you oh, know, gosh. this summer. But so that's quite a bit. You know, Coach, but you're crazy. Yeah, yeah no, I, I get that a lot too. And I, you know, when when I talk about, you know, my teaching career life, you know, prior to this, I was a middle school math teacher as well. So oh, wow. uh, a lot of people also, you know, give me the pats on the back because, you know, teaching middle school is, you know, takes a certain types of, yeah, type of does. person too to <laughs> deal with those, you know, raging hormones and, and all the uh, emotional ups and downs of, you know, those middle school years. But um, for whatever reason, that's that's what I was wired to do. Um, and now it kind of transitioned to, into high school. But that culture that you talk about, it it actually in a good high school program doesn't just start in your freshman year. Mm -hmm. It really starts, you know, when you get to see them in camp for the first time in first grade. Mm -hmm. it, you get to see it when starting in fourth, fourth grade, they come into our youth feeder program wow. and then play in our Lake Oswego feeder program from fourth through grade through eighth grade. So in some ways, I mean, this job, you know, it's, at one point, I, I even considered like going into youth ministry and I, I you know, I kind of shied away from it. But, you know, I kind of joke that at the end of the day, there is some pastoral aspect of my job. Oh, that, absolutely. There's know, my, no doubt. I'm at, I'm at a public school and I don't really, you know, openly talk about my sure, faith like that. Sure. Hopefully my life is a testimony enough um, with what I've been doing. But mm. it's really that first grade through 12th grade 
journey that, you know, we had the privilege of walking. Mm -hmm. And then once they graduate, you know, the summer is really the best time because guys who have graduated and moved on to college or gotten full-time jobs, they come back. Um, So it's, it's really like first through whatever adulthood that, you know, if I'm blessed enough to coach here for another 20 years and I can make it work financially for my family, maybe that's what I do. Um, but even eight years into it, you know, we've been able to see a lot of fruit of our, our labor through the relationships that we've been able to build. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I feel I mean, you're totally right. I think it's in itself, like, the way that you have to care for the students is very similar to youth ministry, I guess. Mm-hmm. And um, for me, what's what would be amazing to see is like, you know, you're saying you you see some kids come through camp as young as fourth grade. I mean, mm-hmm. if they keep going, like you get to see these kids all the way through, which is incredible. Yeah it's, a, yeah, it's an incredible journey. So, yeah. you know, this past year, I just finished my seventh year. So these seniors, you know, when you 12 minus seven, I I met them when they were in fifth grade. Right, right. right? Yeah. And so to see how much they've grown and and to realize how fast it goes as well, because my own mm-hmm. son's in the sixth grade going to seventh. That's right. Yeah. And in the blink of an eye, he may he may be a senior, you know, and and it's something again, a lot of coaches uh before me who have had to wrestle between, hey, do I stay in high school or move on to college? A lot of them end up staying in high school because their children play. Mm-hmm. And the, their sons or daughters ask, Hey, dad you know, mom or dad, you know, whoever's coaching them, I, I want to be coached by you. And so that's something that I'm having to figure out now, because then I'll see if the next two years, if he continues to progress, this may end up being a six year commitment for me. If my son says, I really want to go to the high school where you coach, I want to be coached by you and, and live this journey. So something, you know, that you always have to keep in the back of your mind as you, you know, you wrestle with, hey, again, what do I, what do I want to do when I grow up? Yeah. So, yeah. And what do I want to do as my children are growing up? Right. That's, so yeah. it's all, I think, interconnected. Um, so, you know, you said you've been working with students for quite some time now. Um, I w- was wondering, so like even from when you were younger, is education and like being working with young students and people, the investment that you make into young people, like, is that something you always wanted to do? How did that come about? Yeah, um, I had a really interesting opportunity recently. Um, I joined a program called NetCal. It's uh, we're in, in the part of the 11th cohort. It was a program that came out of um, University of Southern California network of Korean American leaders. And just this past weekend, I'm with the 10 other you know Korean Americans, middle age, you know, uh, of all different sorts of you know profession, law, finance. You know, some we have a friend who sells guitars. You know, mm-hmm. third generation, fam- you know, Korean American family uh, owns a company called Orangewood Guitars. They sell guitars, and and so we're sitting in in this space uh, doing our professional development. And the and Dr. Patton, who's been doing you know this professional development for this group for the eleven years, um, was leading a workshop on what makes a good team, right? Mm-hmm. And in order to lead a good team, you have to answer these three questions: so, who am I? Where are we? Uh, who are we? Mm-hmm. And where are we going? And so it's been interesting at 46 years old to really ask that question, like, who am I, mm. right? And, and to sit here, you know, a couple of days after that workshop to sit here and, and have you asking me, like, about, you know, what I want to be when I grow up. Yeah. Where people who may be listening going, all right, so this guy's a high school basketball coach. But really, at the end of it is understanding who I am mm. and my identity. So in those things, you have to also give yourself permission to understand it's going to change. 
And for today, like being a dad is a bigger identity than being a coach. Yeah. Right. And being a husband of 16 years, you know, we celebrate our 16 year anniversary with oh, my congrats. wife. Thank you. And and so so that is an identity. You know, I'm a son. You know, a lot of when I was eight years ago, when I was sitting on the bench at University of Portland, it's again one of the very few and first Korean Americans to sit on a Division One, you know, basketball bench. Mm-hmm. You know, my my path eight years ago was in my mind going to be the first Division One college head coach, mm. and. And my mother was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer our second year, December of the season that we're going into. Mm-hmm. And that rocked my world. Yeah. You know, I have a younger brother who is a very accomplished chef, a James Beard nominated chef from New York City. Oh, wow. Um, he, he owns a couple of restaurants here in Portland, Oregon called Toki and Hanok. And so he, when he found that we all shared this news, he quit his job and moved back to Portland in January. My younger sister who had followed, she's seven years younger than me. She also joined Teach for America as I did. And she was teaching in New York City in Brooklyn. She left in June. And I left, I also subsequently left my coaching staff, you know, a job at University, University of Portland in June. And so that was a family decision for us to mm-hmm. rally back and make sure that she was okay. She's still battling it today. And, and wow. I count. Every one of those days in the past eight years is something I would never trade for anything that I may have accomplished professionally. Mm. But in that case, who am I? Is I'm a, I'm a son. Like eight years ago, being a son was a big deal, sure. right? More than a college basketball coach. Mm. So what I've been reflecting on is who am I today? And it, it really comes down to I'm an immigrant. I am one of the rare, you know, rare cases of an Asian American basketball coach. Mm-hmm. And what do I, you know, what do I do with that? And so the next part of it is who are we, you know, what team am I a part of? Right. So I'm a part of this, you know, NetCal fellowship. Okay. So that's one I'm, I'm a part of, you know, I get to be on the part of USA basketball junior national team coaching staff. So that's a part, you know, so these are all parts of the bubbles that I, I fit into. Um, and how do I, how do I best serve and best represent in each of those cases? Right. And then the, the ultimate thing again, it's really my team is my core of my wife and my two kids really at the end of the day. And the question is, where am I, where are we going? Mm. And so they have had, I've had some professional opportunities, but that would mean uprooting my family from this place that they've known as home, mm. you know? So what are the trade-offs to that? You know, is the financial gains of those things enough to uproot our kids or can we make it work right now where we continue to sustain the lifestyle that we have today? Mm-hmm. Um, so those are all things I'm wrestling with. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I've turned down some professional opportunities over the past eight years, but I don't regret any one of those. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, I I know that, you know, again, as I was telling you, I, I'm coming, I'm looking out my window. I have professional basketball players, you know, working out in our gym right now. I yeah. built some relationships where I can, you know, put in some calls. But, you know, what what would that look like if I were to leave? Um, I think it, it always comes down to what are you willing to give up? And for us, you know, giving up our family time hasn't been, you know, there hasn't been anything that came across our table that says, okay, it's worth it to let that go to pursue something else. No, I think it's really great. Um, Well, thank you for the reflection because I feel, what was it? Who am I? Who are we? Who are we? And where are we going? Where are we going? That's really good. I want to reflect on that a little bit after this, but (laughs) um, uh, so coach, I, um, how okay so say i'm listening right now there's a listener listening and he's like okay this is amazing he is a 
high school basketball coach in doing really great and he's successful at it. I want to do that. What does one even do to like get where? What is that? What even happens? How does that yeah. even work? It yeah, it's it's an interesting profession in that one in one in one sense the barrier to entry is actually not that high, right? Um, you just you know for most places you, you may need to be a college graduate, but even uh-huh. if you don't, if you're not, if you want to just coach and you love the game, uh-huh. you can go and coach in club club scenes right where you don't the the barrier to entry in terms of your qualifications or certifications isn't as steep and we live in a country where everybody thinks they're an expert in basketball (laughs) so (laughs) be careful what you wish for because as you come in then everybody's going to have an opinion on how you run your offense how you run Mm -hmm. defense how you sub your teammates and all of that stuff Mm -hmm. um at the same time to continue to grow in the profession it's there's some ceilings and whether that you want to call that a glass ceiling or a bamboo ceiling you know, those, those things do exist. So how do you get around that? Or how do you break through those things? And mm-hmm. I think that's where it's been interesting to reflect on my journey and and know that at least the, the thing that I've done, we go back to like the who am I question. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm a first son, a first of three, right? I have two, a younger brother, younger sister of a first, you know, I'm a, a first generation immigrant family. And in that, in that sense, not only have I had to figure out when I joined the basketball ranks, how to figure that out, but just in general, everything, mm-hmm. right? How to apply for college? How do you, how do you get jobs? How yeah. do you, how do you get a driver? Those are all things that I've had to figure out on my own. And, and so I think what's who I'm, who I am has naturally led to is I ask a lot of questions and I mm-hmm. seek out a lot of mentors. Mm-hmm. And that's just something I do on a natural basis because I didn't, that's not something I could re- depend on my parents for. Yeah, yeah. So my best advice is look, seek out mentors and mm. i don't know what your hitting rate what that would be on that if you if and and some people are extroverted they feel completely comfortable doing that other people are introverted and they really it makes them nervous to just yeah. pick up a call phone and call somebody um but i think that's where at least for myself and each anytime some you know part of what i've been doing intentionally to put myself out there is to make myself available to other asian american coaches who want to reach out so anytime i get on a podcast or i make a social media post or anything i'm making my my contact available because the best people in our profession the best in the business mm-hmm. have done that mm-hmm. like it's it's amazing how the the coaches who are most looked upon and you know you may think they're a celebrity they a lot of them are also super down to earth mm-hmm. and they make themselves available because they understand who are we? Well, they're, they're part of something bigger than themselves in yeah. this coaching profession. So if somebody behind you coming up in their career is coming up and trying to get better at their craft to serve kids, the best coaches are always going to say, yes, come watch practice, ask me any questions, you know, give me a call. Let's go out to lunch. I found that to be the case, at least in our profession, that the best always look out for the people that come behind. And that, that might not necessarily be the case in other cutthroat industries, but especially in the high school coaching setting and even in college and professional, the best actually are really good at giving back and, and understanding that they're a part of something bigger than themselves. Man, that's amazing. And I and I love that, like just this humble attitude of like, we're all in this together. That's why I love sports, honestly. It's just mm-hmm. like so great. <laughs> Yeah. Um, okay. So, coach, for you, um, wait. So, like, you in, initially, the plan was not for you to be a basketball coach, from what it sounds no. like. You no. were a teacher. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and then you were specific, specifically a math teacher when you entered right. college. You know, way back, not way back. Yeah, just a little, little while ago. Appreciate that. Yep, not too long ago. <laughs> sure. Um, was a plan for you to just like be a teacher, or? Yeah, my I graduated from high school in 1995. Uh-huh. I enrolled at University of Oregon. Um, I did the Unsay Exchange program my junior year. Um, oh, by the time okay. I was going there, my junior year, 97, 98, that was during the IMF. You know, Asian yes. economic crisis. Yes. Very fascinating time to to live in our in my motherland during that time. But I was a business major at that oh, point, and okay. specifically, I was going to be an accounting you know concentration. Wanted to sit for the CPA exam. I had a job offer, full time job offer to go oh, to wow. Boeing. You know, up in Seattle and and work that corporate life. Um, I had a, an opportunity to do a summer internship between my fourth and fifth year of college because, uh-huh. and I'm not sure what the case is today, but back then you had to. You had to sit for a fifth year of college to sit for the CPA exam. Oh, yeah. Okay. So what I ended up happening was that fall of my fifth year, I was getting rejected from all these accounting firms because I wasn't really passionate about studying accounting. (laughs) I I was actually really passionate about just hanging out with people and spending time and building relationships. So um, at the same time, I had spent a lot of time, whether I was a Sunday school teacher or summer camp counselor, I, I had a lot of experience, you know, again, being the oldest of three, being a sports person, I was always the person who, if we had basketball games, I would be the one organizing it. And, and really, in that sense, being a teacher. So I applied for the Teach for America program and I got in, which mm. is ironic in that it was way more selective than any of the accounting jobs that I was getting rejected from. Yeah, Teach so for America is like super selective. Super selective, but I think it goes to show you, and I, I don't say that to brag about me. And again, if you understand how bad of an accounting and finance student I was, then you would, <laughs> you would understand that this, is, this has nothing to do with my ego. But it has everything to do with, at that time in my life, I wasn't honest with myself on what mm-hmm. I was good at. And when I went, I was solely focused on duty, filial mm-hmm. piety of being the oldest son. Yeah. having a stable job and making money so that I could, you know, provide for my family. Um, so that was really the first step in being honest with myself. And then when I joined the program, you know, we did our five week training in Houston and they literally just throw you out there. And, That's what and, I hear. Yeah, when I, I, when I really reflect on it, like how little training I received before I went into the classroom, it's, yeah. it's remarkable. But for me, I was able to survive because I was in the South Bronx mm. You know, looking the way I, I looked like I was 15 years old out of college, even though I was 22. Um, a lot of my students had never had an Asian American teacher in their lives. A lot of them, this is African American, Puerto Rican, Dominican, Guatemalan, you know, community in the South Bronx. And the, the previous year to when I joined, they had gone through three different math teachers. Mm. So, you know, I think, again, who am I? Well, I, I'm an immigrant. I'm a child of immigrants who my parents left everything and they weren't going to go back to Korea. Mm. I, you know, and so I didn't leave everything, but I, I, you know, I said bye to everybody and I left the West coast to end up in New York city of all Mm -hmm. places. And I wasn't going to go back to the West coast. Um, And so a lot of the students challenged me those first, you know, weeks to months, like, are you going to be one of those guys who just, again, says all the right things, but they dip out as soon as, you know, something hard happens. And I really look back on that time. I I attribute my resilience or my ability to stick with it to my identity in terms of having seen my own parents suck it up and get it done. Mm -hmm. And also in that, 
I was a pretty good little basketball player and <laughs> I could go out during recess time and call out the, you know, best player in the bat in the schoolyard and, you know, give them the business, let them know who the best, you know, player on the courtyard was. And, That's pretty cool. and coming from, you know, coming back from lunch recess time, you know, the conversation wasn't on the math lesson that was about to happen, yeah. but it was on how Mr. Cho gave buckets mm -hmm. to Ahmad and mm -hmm. Greg and everybody mm -hmm. else in the schoolyard. So a little bit of that momentum and excitement, you know, you can, you can have some connecting, you know, bonding experience with it but also then you then you can say hey all right let's get you know open up our textbook to page whatever wow, and you know wow. get to our lesson yeah yeah um so you okay so you always played basketball then growing up yeah i you know we we were fortunate i was 10 years old going into the third grade repeated third grade and we happened to live in an apartment complex in springfield oregon uh -huh. across the street from a public park that had a oh. basketball court and again, not to date myself too much, <laughs> back in 1986, the late 80s, early 90s, you know, there aren't this kind of pay-to-play model that exists today that mm -hmm, does mm -hmm. that keeps access to the game away from a lot of people. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's not, again, I don't, you can, I would love for somebody to turn the question back on you and say, what's it like to be a Korean American figure skater, <laughs> you know, and a figure <laughs> skating coach? But access to figure skating is pretty hard. Yeah. Well, access to basketball for an immigrant family with no money was actually pretty easy. Mm. My parents just bought me a basketball. I walked across the street. People were playing. You raise your hand and say, hey, can I get next game? And if you're good enough, you got picked up. So that was really my formative years of just discovering the game on my own without any coaching. And then as I began to become pretty you know, pretty good at it, then, you know, I joined some teams and, you know, received some coaching in high school that allowed me to at least tap out as a pretty good high school basketball player. Wow. Um, do you feel like it's like that now, though? I mean, I, I, I was touching on it earlier. I, I think I think these days access to the game like that and to the ability to get to training and get the resources to improve your game as much. In some ways, it's much harder in that, there's so much information out there that if you're motivated enough, you can look up YouTube or you can listen to podcasts, sure, you can yeah. watch highlights and you can, you have information, but in terms of really qualified coaches who will sit with you and walk that journey with you, unless you have access to money or access to a really dedicated coaching staff, I, I think there's a gap there and it's growing by the day, by the minute mm. between the rich and, and those who can't afford it. And, oh, yeah, and that's, that's a huge issue in our country, not just in basketball, but many sports. That's sad, huh? Uh, it's sad, but again, you, you know, I think if you have a heart for it, I think if you if you come at it from an angle of trying to solve a problem, I think there's some opportunities there that could be also very exciting. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, but you know what you said too, if you like love it and you pursue it and you do the research and get resourced yourself, like that would be amazing. But for me, honestly, my experience, that's like one in, I don't even know, like, you know, like mm -hmm. it's kind of rare and yeah. those kind of people should be playing the sport and they should have people coming around to support them. But um, yeah, I just feel like it's hard to do. And I, and I, and I like, this is my soapbox, honestly, coach. It's like, you mm -hmm. know, this, what you're describing about your life right now to me, mm -hmm. I am inspired and in awe and kind of sad again, because it's like, you have this grit that I think a lot of, honestly, sorry, guys, Gen Z is kind of missing, you oh, know, wow. like, <laughs> okay, you went there. 
I did. I did. And you know, this is a challenge for everyone listening. And even myself, even myself, Mm -hmm. you know, I think I, I fall into the culture sometimes as well. And I, I get lazy. But Mm -hmm. again, we have more access to information than we ever did, you and I growing up, you Mm -hmm. know, and so um, it should be better. It should be better is what I think. But anyways, (laughs) no, no, you can stay on that soapbox all day. I mean, you know, I, I have a friend of mine who works, again, being fortunate to have Nike just in our backyard. We have, you know, I had a friend who works in their, you know, children's, you know, product department. Mm-hmm. And he was doing some research and he mentioned that we live in the most activist, gener- our, the Gen Zs or whoever, you know, the kids that we see, they are the most activist and yet the least active generation that we've seen. So on one hand, I think a lot of them understand with all the burdens that we're laying on the next generation with, you know, global warming or all the racial tensions and all the mental health issues that's coming to surface that that we're having to deal with. And they have they feel very passionate about it. And, and there's a lot who who take on that activist role and are actually we need them mm-hmm. to take on that role mm-hmm. so that that, you know, some things that need to change can change. And at the same time, we have a very like not active, you know, generation that, again, it's very easy to consume, you know, mm-hmm. information on social media, consume it and then be done with it, right? Yeah. But to to sit back and then, okay, that happened. What's what's on the next scroll? What's on the next swipe? And so the challenge for those of us who are older or, or have, you know, have a connecting, you know, tissue to the other Gen X, millennial, whatever that we want to associate ourselves with, um, I think we have a responsibility to connect those dots for them and also meet them where they're at. Uh, the best coaches do that, right? And, and if I coach the same way in 2022 as I did in 2005, I, I just can't be an effective coach. Mm. So, you know, evolve or die. <laughs> you know, uh, we have to continue to, you know, we tell our players to get out of their comfort zone all the time. I think mm. that goes for coaches and the teachers and leaders as well. And so that's that part definitely has to be a two way street. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. (laughs) Um, So, um, Coach, you were saying that. um, So after Teach for America and stuff, you did some more teaching, you said? Yeah. So I finished Teach for America's two year program. It's a two year commitment. Right. Um, And you join the organization. They train you and they serve as a liaison between recent graduates who are gung ho to go and change the world with these needy school districts that need teachers, whether in the urban setting or in the rural setting, mm-hmm. right? So it could be, you could be placed in Baltimore, Maryland to the Mississippi Delta. And so I happened to have gotten placed in New York city. Um, the program that I was participating in, you know, whatever the window of time, uh, the New York city department of education had a great deal where if you committed to teaching a third year, you would get a free master's degree. Oh. So I I said, I, you know, I said, why not? So I signed up and I gave up my AmeriCorps grant money, but in exchange um, was able to earn a master's degree from Teachers College, Columbia University. Oh, wow. So I did that. You know, it's funny, again, I, I say that as, you know, somebody listening, I'm sure many of us, you know, may have felt that, you know, pressure to go to a, you know, high academic institution. And, and I think Teachers College is consistently like top three ranked education schools in the, in the country, mm-hmm. right? Um but I'm not putting, I'm not using that degree in the classroom today. <laughs> so kind I of are. I, I'm, yeah, kind of, yes and no. Not really. <laughs> I mean, if we're being honest, not really. But, you know, it, I, that allowed me to at least get my certification. So I continued on and taught in Harlem for three years. 
met my wife, as I was mentioning earlier, she was doing non-governmental, you know, NGO work and, you know, dealing with, you know, trying to, you know, deal with the HIV AIDS problem in Southern Africa. So we got married and we moved to Mozambique uh, off the Indian Ocean. (laughs) Yeah. So I I followed my wife. I was a trailing spouse, as they call it. Um, And we we lived in Shai Shai, uh, which is a city located three hours north of the capital city of Maputo. Oh, former Portuguese smokes. colony, so I had to learn Portuguese. Um, oh, you're treated, kidding. You could talk yeah. to my husband. He's Brazilian. Okay. Uh, well, I, it's been 10 years, and Brazilian <laughs> Portuguese and Mozambican Portuguese is… I'm sure know, it's totally different. <laughs> slightly different, but, you know, it's be- Brazilian Portuguese is beautiful to hear. Uh, easy on the ears, but anyhow, yeah, so I did that, you know, and, and taught at an international school there um, and coached basketball at all, all levels from little children to you know adults oh wow you did that just like because or like you were bored or like (laughs) Uh, (laughs) boy yeah that's well so my my first year living in Mozambique first year of our marriage Uh my wife was working full-time and I took it as a sabbatical Mm -hmm, and so mm -hmm. I spent time we we were living in this house that the organization was providing for we happened to have a backyard that was a big dirt field and that who am I question keeps coming back. You know, when, you, when you're when you really in the thick of it in the inner city education, you you think that's your identity. I think a lot of people, a lot of us are guilty of putting on different hats and putting that identity on a pedestal, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So oftentimes, I mean, even it's today, you know, I have to be really cognizant of it. You know, even an interview like this, oh, Coach Cho, what you're doing is so inspiring and so amazing. And you get the pat on the back, right? Um, if your identity is to be an inner city school teacher, I mean, that's, you know that that is, in one hand, I don't. I would never downplay how important and significant inner city school teachers are in our country. Like the, it was the most important thing in my life. Mm-hmm. But when you get that stripped away and you're you're in a foreign country, you don't have a job, you don't speak the language, and you start asking the question again: What do I want to do when I grow up? Who am I? What mm-hmm. am I about? Mm-hmm. You know, you go through a period of wrestling, and I and that's totally normal and it's totally okay. Uh, it's just funny that on the other end of that, I came out and thinking to myself, I should be a basketball coach, <laughs> you know, and, and that's a whole another long story. But long story short, I, I knew I was going out with no co- contact, no network, but I happened to see that basketball without borders program that is sponsored by the NBA was being held in Johannesburg, South Africa. And so being a gung-ho go-getter that I am, I emailed a bunch of cold called and emailed a bunch of people to see if I can volunteer to coach at this camp. And what the NBA was doing back in 2000, summer of 2006, was they would invite 100 of the top players from all over the continent, Angola, Tanzania, you, you name it, Tunisia, and they would, Senegal, they would invite all these players. And then what they would do is they would invite NBA coaches and scouts and players to come and run this camp. What? Yeah, it's a pretty amazing program. It's still going, has has had a tremendous impact in the continent of Africa. Well, I finally get the permission to say, somebody from the NBA office said, hey, why don't you come down? We got a spot for you as a volunteer coach. Great. What do you mean finally? I'm just really curious. Like, like I, just got, I just pursuing? got a lot of no's. Yeah, I got, hey, you know, you you don't have the qualifications or no, or spots are full. There's a lot of people, again, in some ways, the barrier to entry and coaching is really easy. Uh-huh. In other ways, the barrier to entry to into a fraternity of the NBA coaches or a sure, fraternity sure. is really hard. But like you just kept pursuing. I'm just so curious. Yeah, I was persistent. And like you just kept emailing, yeah, calling. Yeah, I just emailed and called this 
many people as possible. And like you would say something different every time? No, or? I, no, I would, I would stay true to myself. I, hey, I just coached for two years and, you know, in New York City, I was a uh-huh. middle school teacher. I just got married. I'm moving to Mozambique. I'm just down the street when really it's a six hour bus ride to Johannesburg from the capital city. And, and I said, Hey, I'm, I would love to volunteer. I would love to offer up my free services, you know, and, and then someone of, finally just said, yes. Yeah. Come on down. You know, and, and the person who said yes, actually, this is a neat story and you just, you can't, and you can't script these things. Right. And that's why I think the other piece of how'd you get here, coach Cho, like, well, my, my story is so unique. Uh-huh, I think uh-huh. there's a broad theme of persistence that anybody can apply to, but how it get, how it played out is so unique to each of us. You know, that somebody listening here, hopefully they have their own unique story. Sure. And my particular unique version is somebody said, yes, I got on a bus, got into downtown Joburg, had a missionary couple who was working in Zimbabwe, happened to pick me up, dropped me off at the international school in Johannesburg. Okay. <laughs> and then the next day I walk into the camp and I get the assignment of the station that I'm at. Uh-huh. And I was with the Kimbe Mutombo and Manu What? Bull. And the rebounding and block station. And, and for the listeners, I'm five feet, eight inches tall. I look like a middle school kid standing next to these NBA giants. But that was my entry into this space. And, you know, during the course of that week, I got to see a lot of people who were working in basketball full time, whether they were scouts or coaches or operations people or working for the league office in their international development branch that, I got to see a wide range of people working in basketball uh-huh. and thought to myself, well, shoot, I could see myself doing that. And that's where the seed planted to, you know, where my coaching journey is today. That is incredible. What a story. Yeah, it's, a, it's, <laughs> it's a story. It's a story. And again, it's, it's unique to mind. You couldn't script it. Yeah. Couldn't write it. Um, but it's I always neat in- when you see. Yeah. When you see other young coaches coming up and they have their own unique stories as well. Um, yes, very true. Sorry, I just have this image of you and mm-hmm. Dikimi Matumbo standing next mm-hmm. to each other. And like, I, I actually ran into him when he played for the Hawks years ago. Sure. And um, at a Chinese buffet. <laughs> yeah, great. And then sure. I was, I mean, I was little, like little, little. And mm-hmm. I just was, this man is I, w- I think I was just in shock of how tall and big he was towering over me. Mm-hmm. And that's that's really cool. I like that story a lot. <laughs> yeah. And, it, you know, it it's it's hard for people who are, like, being short people maybe. we You know, it's it, that existence being seven feet, two inches tall and all of it. It's a, it's a totally different existence. Right. But to credit to Dikembe, I think the other piece of him being an inspiration to me was that he didn't, he never forgot where he came from, mm. that he's from the DRC. You know, he's from the Cong- Democratic you know, Republic of Congo. Mm. And with all the millions of dollars that he made playing in America, mm-hmm. that he never lost sight of the next Dikembe that were coming up. And that yeah. he, he consistently went back to the continent to build hospitals in his mother's name or build schools and, and make himself available and to be an ambassador of the game. And mm-hmm. not just that person you might run into at a Chinese buffet or not just the person who's wagging his fingers on every, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know insurance commercial that you might come across. But there's more to that person. And, and mm-hmm. to get that back, you know, story of him seeing, looking for the next young African-American, you know, African talent. That would 
have the same educational opportunities that he had at Georgetown mm-hmm. um, to, and to watch the witness that firsthand and to see somebody give back. I knew that it wasn't just a profession for my own status or ego, but that you could, if you had, a, if you got to a point in your career with the platform that you can have tremendous impact to give back. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, that's, that was, I'm glad I asked. <laughs> <laughs> um, but okay. So you, you live in Africa Mm-hmm. For a little while, and you're teaching basketball there. Sure. Okay, and then you come back to the states. I'm assuming, and then yes. what happens? So, yeah my my wife had finished up her fellowship. Uh-huh. I had I had been teaching at the American International School of Mozambique. Um, I had been coaching. I had started a high school program there. So crazy. And we, yeah, and of all the places, you know, to end up. I just can't believe that. <laughs> like, yeah. like I'm just like imagining this Asian guy. Like, mm-hmm. hey, let's start a high school basketball program. Well, this and was then... at an international school. Oh, okay, 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 okay. You know, this the 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 community that this school was at. You know that they're they're children of expats, children of diplomats, okay, okay. children of people. So it was ironically. I had resisted teaching at that school because I said that this is the wealthiest of the wealth, wealthy. And I think I mean, you just came from Harlem, yeah, Harlem and, yeah. and inner city education. I, and I had some baggage in terms of, you know, growing up on free and reduced lunch myself, mm-hmm. having been on financial aid in college mm-hmm. and having, you know, I had a chip on my shoulder in terms of the rich folks, <laughs> you know, sure, you, you sure. may say it. And there's something really humbling about moving to a country where instantaneously you go from whatever middle class that I may have been classified here Mm -hmm. to being one of the 1% wealthiest in the country. Mm. Just from the fact that I hold an American passport, Mm -hmm. my wife has a, you know, salary, we have a security Mm -hmm. guard, we have a, you know, we we can have, we have a car. Mm -hmm. And so it was really humbling in the blink of an eye actually being pushed up to that economic, socioeconomic status in the country where now people are looking at me with a different lens. Well, look at that wealthy American. What can I get from him? What kind of transactional relationship can we engage in? And so teaching in those two years in the American school really taught me that at the end of the day, children all have the same needs of mm. the questions that they struggle with. Who am I? Where do I belong? Where, you know, where am I going to go to college? How am I going to appease my parents? Mm. You know, how am I going to you know, be honest with myself. And those are all questions that, you know, no matter what background you teach in, young people need that guidance. So that that was a very humbling lesson for me to learn mm-hmm. at, you know, in my early 30s. Um, at the same time, when we came back to Baltimore, my heart was right back into the inner city school setting. My first year, I, I worked in the Baltimore Central, you know, office for the public school system there. I got to observe a lot of amazing teachers from just that administration side of things. And again, the siren call of the teaching classroom called me. I taught at a charter school in Baltimore. Um, And then I had an arrangement where I would only teach from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. so that I would be able to make the hour commute from Baltimore to D.C. to coach at a national powerhouse program called DeMatha Catholic High School. Where a lot of NBA players have come out. Yeah, why, this so, come high out. school sounds so familiar. Yeah, it but. it's it's one of the well known high school pro- basketball programs in the history of the game here. I see. Um, okay. Morgan Wooten, who coached there, was at one point the, he was the first high school basketball coach to be inducted into the Naismith Hall of Fame. Oh wow! Um, and he just he's had numerous you know Hall of Fame basketball players: Danny Ferry, Adrian Dantley, you know, and then the the coach that I worked for, Mike Jones, who had taken over for this legend. 
you know, my first year, I walk into this gym and Victor Oladipo, who played at Indiana University and has been in the NBA, um, Jerry and Grant, Jeremy Grant, guys who played in the league, Quinn Cook, who played at Duke and won the national championship. All those guys were on the same high school team. I see. Which is just <laughs> an embarrassment of riches. But so I went from just not, you know, in the middle of nowhere where people can't even can barely pronounce the name of the players or the country that I was living in. And in the blink of an eye, I had an opportunity to join a, a, a really impactful high school basketball program. Oh, wow. And at that point, I was on my way. That was the stop that I had before I joined the University of Portland College you know, basketball program that gotcha, gotcha. I, I had gotten onto this fast track to become a college basketball coach. Um, so, you know, even getting that first job at um, that high school, the mm -hmm. first one, how, sorry, how do you pronounce it? The Matha. The Matha. Yeah. Um, Okay, I don't know how else to ask this other than mm -hmm. just asking it. Um, sure. Yeah, like, I would imagine it's a very competitive job. <laughs> yes. Um, so, like, what made you so different? Like, why hire Coach Cho? Yeah, and, and when I got hired, I was one of 11 assistant coaches on that coaching staff. 11? 11. 11, Ele 11 okay, which is gotcha. not also not normal. They, you know, instead of having five teams like I 11. did, it was all Assistant yes. coaches for a high school basketball team. <laughs> yes, not normal. Okay. Totally not normal. Yeah, Anybody I, <laughs> listening to this, you know, if you're a high school coach and you have two assistant coaches, please don't feel any kind of guilt. Or, um, and three teams, a varsity, a JV, and a freshman team. Mm. Um, that's, I mean, again, this, I don't know if this interview is running late and I don't, I don't, I hope people aren't bored at this point, but that's, no, that again good. is a story, you know, that um, I ended up being hired by Coach Jones. Um, who came to Mozambique because I had organized a coaches clinic for the local Mozambican coaches wow. through my Nike connection. So wow. what, what happened, long story short, I had a year left between my second and third year. And my wife and I decided this is probably our last year in this country. We're going to go back, you know, get closer to our family, you know, on the East Coast. And, 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 you know, my parents being from Portland and my wife's family from being from Dallas. And so we, we were, we had plans to come back. And so that summer I had a, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to have a coffee meeting with the national manager of high school basketball for Nike. Um, just, you know, met at the Nike campus. And the question that I asked him was unique in that most people really think short-term when you meet somebody of that position, mm -hmm. you know, I think the short-term question is, Hey, can you help me with some basketballs? Can you have, help me with some shoes? Mm -hmm. Really thinking like short-term perishable items, right? Mm -hmm. And my, the big question I was wrestling at the time is the guilt of leaving these kids that I knew that I was going to leave in a year, mm. you know. And so the question I asked was, I have a year left. What can I do to leave the biggest impact mm. with my finite time that I have left here? And he gave a really good response in that you need to work with coaches. I, I know that you coach multiple teams and you're working with players, but you need to, you need to uplift the, the coaches who will carry on your work. Oh, wow. And I, when I heard it initially, I really like, I wasn't about it. I didn't want to hear that. I love coaching. I love being on the floor and I was still young. I was mm -hmm. playing. Mm -hmm. And really when I came back to Mozambique after that, you know, summer of visiting my parents and family, I really wrestled with it and I realized that, that he was right. Mm -hmm. And so the deal that he had made was if you organize a coach's clinic, then I will send you one of my top elite high school coaches in the country. <gasps> So I had to organize a flight and hotel mm. and, you know, 
in groups, you know, players for them to train, which was easy because I was all over the country. You know, I knew a lot of coaches and players and mm-hmm. had my own, you know, high school program as well. Uh, so we had about two weeks left in the country. Coach Jones from DeMatha and Tony Dorado, who's the national manager for Nike High School Basketball, they make the trek all the way from Portland, Oregon and Washington, D.C., and I host them for a week. That is insane. Yeah, it's an insane story. So I host them. You know, we have this amazing experience. I take them to the bordering country in South Africa. I take them to the safari, you know, watch the, you know, attend like a national camp in the national uh, uh, park called Kruger Park, where you can watch, you know, animal, lions and giraffes and rhinos and all of that. Give them this amazing, just eye-opening experience. Well, the second night, Coach Jones and I were, you know, sitting out in the hotel lobby and having, you know, having dinner, getting ready to have dinner. Coach Jones said to me, if you ever end up back in the United States, stateside, and you happen to be close to D.C., I want you to go join my coaching staff. <gasps> so see. he offered me a spot on his this right. prestigious high school program two days into his trip. That's amazing. So, again, I could have ended up. My wife and I could have ended up in New York City where we met and got married, or we could have ended up in Dallas or Portland. But of all the places to end up, we ended up in Baltimore. Mm. And similar to my trek from, you know, Maputo, you know, Mozambique to Johannesburg to go to that basketball without borders camp, I had committed myself to this journey of mm. reverse commuting from Baltimore to DC every day for three years. Um, That's insane. And you yeah. know, and for me, I feel like. Uh, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but like even just Coach Jones, like meeting you, seeing your work and what you're all about, I feel like it probably a lot of it is a character thing too. You know, like hiring a good coach is not mm-hmm. only about skill. I feel like a lot of the times, and um, man, Coach, I just so incredible. These stories are like unbelievable, honestly. <laughs> yeah, no, you almost can't write it, and that's why you know sometimes I'm hesitant. To- to share it just because I've told these stories and I, I feel like I'm a broken record in different podcasts, but I know for this audience that some of it, I think, again, I think if you try to write this story mm. and follow my path, like the best advice, you know, that I've ever received as a coach is be yourself. Yeah. You know, and I think some, for somebody listening is what are some general themes that they can take away? Yes. You know, it's not like they can recreate an experience where they're going to end up at a camp with the Kimbe, Matumbo right. or, you know, things of that nature. <laughs> Um, but really, yeah, be yourself and, mm-hmm. and know what you're good at mm-hmm. and embrace the fact that you're different. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's something that I really embraced from day one. And I knew that I looked different and that, you know, you can look at that as a hurdle or an obstacle or you can use it as a, a challenge and an opportunity that, OK, well, if I'm different, but I'm really good, then I'll be more memorable. Yeah. And I think that that's served, that's played itself out in multiple cases over my over the course of my career. Yeah, I mean, and what you just said, I think it doesn't just apply to coaching, you know, just in mm-hmm. general careers across the board or even just whatever it is that you want to do, being yourself is um, honestly sometimes really hard to do. Yeah. But um, I think the best outcomes come from, from doing that. So... Um, yeah, Coach, you know, I, I'm so sorry to keep you for so long. I um, will wrap it up a little bit. And I okay. usually end um, our conversations with people asking um, just some final questions. One of them being, what is the thing you like least about being a high school basketball coach? <laughs> hmm. 
That's a good question. Um, there's not a lot. I mean, I, I love what I do. Um, but if I'm being completely transparent with you, I mean, it's come with a lot of financial sacrifice. Mm. You know, I think it's, it's, I woke up, I think in a panic the other day, like I woke up and I realized how old I am and how mm. old the kids are getting and saying, and looking at my bank account and thinking, wow, like I better, you know, start putting some money away for my, you know, for my children. Mm. And so there's, there's, there's that for sure. Mm. Um, and I, I say that not just as a high school coach, but I knew that if I was going to even continue on this pursuit of being a college coach, it would have meant that relocating every two to three years, uprooting sure, my yeah. family as I was climbing the ranks. And so I think some of that aspect of the job is it's tenuous. Yeah. And so you're always having to balance you know, stability with ambition. Mm. Right? And I think that that tension a lot of listeners or a lot of other people who come before you know can can share and and relate to um but there's you know obviously i've been doing this for 15 16 years so there's also elements of you know i love doing this job and i'm yeah. i'm fit for it and and i see the importance and the impact of the work so you know it makes those those moments of doubt you know a little bit more palatable at the same time i i think where being where i'm at being and, and the stage that I'm at, what I've been able to accomplish, I think now it's how do I capitalize on all the goodwill and the mm. reputation that we built, not just myself, but our coaching staff has built so that sure, we can all, yeah. you know, be able to be a little bit more comfortable than what we are today. Nice. Um, I guess, would you say everything you just, I mean, you actually said a lot of things that you love about your job. Mm -hmm. um, I was going to ask, like, what do you like the best but I feel like you said a lot of things. Is there something more you'd like to add? Um, just just that there's nothing like being a part of something bigger than yourself. Yeah, being a part of a yeah. team and having a common pursuit. Um, I I will never forget, you know, being a business major at University of Oregon. It's pretty competitive, mm -hmm. right? You're, you're you're competing against other students for the few select spots for these corporate jobs coming out of college. When I joined Teach for America, and this was the last year they had the national train, training in Houston, there was a thousand core members all descending upon the University of Houston campus. And we went through a five-week training. And the energy of all those peers of mine, recent college grads who were still idealistic, were dreamers, mm -hmm. wanted to do something with their lives that would impact, you know, uh, uh, and serve a need in our country. Like, I'd never forget that. Mm -hmm. And it almost felt like being on a giant team. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's really rare even for, you know, people who would go through a traditional teacher's education, you know, education degree. Maybe you're graduating with a class of 100 or 200. But to feel the energy and the enthusiasm of a thousand teachers about to just spread out all across the country, um, I'd never forget that. And I think in some ways I, I've always pursued something where, I know that I'm a part of something bigger than myself. Mm. That if I do struggle and have those hard days, that I have a Rolodex of phone numbers that I can call and just get grounded and remind myself of what I'm gifted at, how I'm living out my life to live out that gift mm -hmm. and and to have an impact that would be, you know, long lasting. Yes, yes. Yeah, I, I'm in total agreement. I really love that too. And I think that's what's so... I mean, it's like sports can be kind of romanticized in that way, too, mm -hmm. in that 
you know, you're all in it together. You know, even, for example, when Atlanta won the World Series last year, it's like, Mm -hmm. you know, you're not even really there, but we're all in this together. So, yeah, I get it. Um, Okay, so do you have any... um, it can be practical advice or any advice at all for somebody listening that's like, hey, you know what? I love basketball. I don't think I'm going to make it to the NBA, but I really love it. And I want to do what Coach Cho's doing. Do you have any – you've shared some really great pieces of advice, but any final comments? Um, for me, I, I've always – even the coaching piece, I always wanted to be – doing my work in the neighborhood I was living in. Mm. Um, and so that's that might not ne- necessarily fit somebody who, you know, where they live. Maybe the high school program isn't the fit for that person, right? Mm-hmm. But I've been fortunate in when I started coaching in Harlem, you know, I was teaching, but I was also teaching and, and coaching at a school that was four blocks from where I lived. So I think just knowing that I was taking care of my community mm-hmm, was mm-hmm. a big piece. Mm. And I think... Maybe maybe the one advice I can give is look in your own backyard first and see where you can serve and see where you can engage in the community that living in um, that you're living in. Um, for again, for me, being Korean American, living in Harlem, a lot of it was there was reconciliation that needed to be made in terms of even the Asian American, African American relationships, or just knowing that like relocation into a space and teaching teaching in the space that I was. Um, living in it gave me more weight in terms of the parents mm. and, and the community members yeah right? sure. that I wasn't somebody who's just going to be coming in and out no I I there's so much of my existence that I could never understand the the pain and the hurt and the burdens that you know our African-American you know brothers and sisters carry in this country mm. but just the proximity of it you know really allowed me to see their pain but also see the beauty in the struggle to see the resilience and to see how quickly I was welcomed into that, that community mm-hmm. as one of their own, I, I, you know, and so to experience that, I think it's, it's always reminded me even today as I coach in Lake Oswego, I live in Lake Oswego, I raised my children here. And so it's going back to like why it's so important to me to put Lake Cho on all our t-shirts so that Kids of all races in our city are wearing it. Mm-hmm. And but at the same time, it's the handful of Asian Americans who are here, whether your name last name is a Kim or a Lee or a Park or a Wang or, or uh, you know, the Sanjays of the world, you know, anybody who can look at it and say, there's permission to put your ethnic name mm-hmm. on a t shirt. Yeah. That that that's our our part of saying that we belong here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we can have that kind of impact. If we can start with our backyard, then I think we can grow to having impact in a wider capacity. Oh, that's so good. You guys, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, but let's all put our na- last names on our T-shirts and then see what sells, you know, but sure. Um, well, um, Coach, thank you so much again for your time tonight. I really appreciate you sh- sharing your journey so transparently with me and the listeners today. I... Um, have come away with a lot. So I really appreciate it. I hate to put you on the spot, but like you mentioned before, um, if there's somebody that maybe has questions about uh, this episode or what it is that you do, would you be open to me connecting them with you? Please. I've been fortunate to have people do that for me. 
um, my email, my cell phone number, my you know social media, all that stuff. Yeah, please feel free to share, and I'd be happy to continue the conversation. And I'm sure I, you know some people who call in, call in. I always you know find a way to learn as well. So would welcome that. Awesome. Thank you so much. Hey, guys, if you have any questions, um, Coach is open. So please feel free to DM me and I'll connect you right away. You can email me at podcastwigu at gmail.com. Thanks, guys. Until next time. Thanks, Coach Cho. Bye.